and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I travelled to the northeast of Fife to find out more about an autumnal drink, cider. I visited Peter Crawford on his farm to find out how he hand makes not in cider. We learned about the history of this drink and how champagne plays a huge part in his process. We also chatted about his other company, Sip Champagne. Join us for a walk through the Fife countryside. I'm here with Peter Crawford at Naughton Farm, which is a farm and orchard in Fife, and we're going to find out more about his business and cider making. So hi, Peter, how are you? Really well, thanks. Really great to see you. You too. So can you just, we're standing here, obviously this is audio, people can't see. We're standing on a nice autumnal day. Uh, we're looking at a load of trees. It's thankfully not raining, which I'm, I don't know whether it has been here, but it's been chucking it down in Glasgow. <laughs> yeah, so could you just tell us kind of what we can see and um, what, what it is you do with, with your orchard? farm so we're standing in front of the main the main orchard space uh it's all south facing so there's a very low uh, low line slope uh, running south and we're looking at two main orchards uh, we've got the one on the left is our young eating and cooking orchard so it's got about 50 varieties of eating and cooking apples and then on the right hand side we're looking at cider apple varieties and they were planted um just earlier on this year so what's the difference between this is probably a daft question but Cooking and eating apples and cider apples, what, what makes them different? In the UK, we have a, an amazing history of cider making. And there are, broadly speaking, there are two styles of cider. You have an East Coast cider and a West Coast cider. And in the East Coast cider, they use, tend to use, not always, but they tend to use eating and cooking apples. And West Coast cider, they use cider varieties. The eating cooking apples are sweet and sharp apples. So you're kind of Coxange Pippin, Bramley apples, things like that. Uh, the cider varieties are what we call bitter, sweet and bitter sharp. Um, so they are quite literally bitter, sweet and bitter sharp. They are inedible, um, only to the, the finest palates, um, but they make incredible cider. And so will you use a mix of the eating and cooking and cider apples in the cider? No, so what, what the classic cider that we make is a traditional method cider and we use eating and cooking apples to make that. But in the same breath, we've started making a cider variety traditional method as well um, last year, uh, which is why I planted that that orchard over there. So is there quite a lot of cider made in the east coast of Scotland? So it's only really in the last, I would say, decade that we've seen um, cider hit Scotland as a whole. Um, there, are, there were, you know, two or three before I started. Now we're looking at maybe 15 or 16 producers in, in, in the whole of Scotland. And would that be a traditional East Coast cider, like you said, with cooking and eating apples, or is it a mix? It's very much a mix. There's an incredible array of different cider makers in Scotland, which is great for, for us to really stamp ourselves on the cider market. We've got lots of different styles, um, lots of cider varieties, lots of eating and cooking varieties and everything in between. If you can make cider with eating and cooking apples, does that mean you could make it at home? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you should give it a go. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. I want, I want to say, obviously, it's incredibly hard, but it's not. It's very easy. Um, and the process of fermenting is something that I think everyone should give a go at. It's, it, it's a lot of fun seeing something come alive and, you know, explore the difference between a juice of apple and cider. The two very, very different things. It's interesting because I've got so many apples just now from my local veg box. So I've been wondering what to do with them. So I wonder if I should go back home. Yeah, you can absolutely give it a go. Give it a go. So even when you buy apple juice, it's good fun to play around with fermentations. Just buying apple juice from a store, you know, letting it open up and letting it start to ferment mm -hmm. and just see what happens. 
So we're outside the, the maceration press and press room rather, and uh, that's where we, we kind of start the process. So the process is, is identical to winemaking. So the fruit grows on the trees around autumn time. So we start harvesting kind of middle of September, uh, maybe slightly earlier. This year we started slightly earlier and we had a very, very hot year. So we started you know, about two weeks earlier than last, last year. Then we pick the apples. I tend to want to pick the apples and press them within 24, 48 hours. I don't want to let them sit, settle too much. And then we go into the, the press shed. Do you pick them all by hand? Uh, yes, that's one of the big differences actually with the way we do things is everything is picked off the tree by hand. When you get a chance to taste it, you'll see what I mean. One of the really key things about for me about cider is when you look at any wine producing region and I, my, my background is champagne when you look at the way they handle the fruit it's very very delicate they don't want any bruising they don't want any loss of of juice they don't want any fraction of the grapes or anything like that and that's something i carry into the cider making so when i pick the apples i don't want any bruising at all so i don't want it to hit the ground i don't want when when it's taken off the tree and it needs to be delicately taken off the tree delicately placed into the basket then taken across Almost, you know, within 24 hours, we then macerate and press immediately. So we're now in the, the press shed. So we have a big elevator mill to our right here. We place the apples in, we wash them first, and then we place them into the bath here. And then they run up the elevator and they're macerated into a pulp. And the pulp goes onto the press. And this is an old rack and cloth press, um, hand-built, and you load a rack onto the press, you put a little box around it, and then you have a little um, cloth, uh, and you, you put the apple pulp into the cloth, wrap it up, put another rack on top, and re repeat the process, depending on the size of the, the press, seven times for us. You tend to get about 50 to 60% juice, so for a kilo of apples, you'll get 500 mils, give or take, of juice from that style of press. Um, but it's quite a nice, it's, for, for us and the way we do cider, it's a nice press to use. It's a very slow pressing process. It takes, you know, about an hour from start to finish. It's a nice slow process. And also it's a natural straining mechanism um, because the cloths themselves are, are a you know, nice weave of cloth. So they strain not only through the apple pulp itself, but actually through the cloth. So you get a really clean juice through there. And it take, because it takes so long, all of the juice running through from the center contacts all the apple pulp all the way through. And that gives you a really nice concentration, lots of minerals, lots of flavor profiles from, from the apple. Um, so you mentioned your dad lives over the hill. So have you always lived here? Yes, absolutely. I've lived here all my life. Um, and the house is just beyond the wall garden, which is where we're heading now. So these are, these are all bottles ready to be filled. One of my connections in the industry is, is through Champagne. So I get all my bottles from Champagne. Um, these have all ha previously had Champagne in them. And in Champagne, they have a rather hilarious rule in, in the 21st century where they can't reuse bottles. So I just get them sent over and I wash them and then reuse them. So we're just walking past some outhouse buildings on our left. So are these part of the farm? Yes, absolutely. So the, this is where we're walking up to the walled garden, uh, which is where one of the one of the parts of the orchard are. And these are buildings that we're slowly renovating. Um, and as you'll see in a second, we have our vinification sheds, um, which is where the fermentations occur. So we'll go in here. I really smell it. 
<laughs> it's just an issue for men. It's nice though. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a lovely smell. Um, it can be overpowering. It's sadly one of those things you need to be very aware of. Uh, carbon dioxide obviously kills. We, we have to make sure we open the doors when it gets too many, but we haven't got too many ferments going at the moment, so it's, it's okay. So we're in the, the first of the vinification sheds and um, we do what's called open vat fermenting. So um, fermentation is a complex process uh, and we like to introduce oxygen into the fermentation process. One of the unique things that I use is I use a standardized yeast. So I use a yeast from Champagne to do the fermentations. So most, most cider producers tend to, to allow a natural fermentation process to occur, but I'm looking for a very, very clean fermentation process and most importantly, a very quick fermentation process. So I want it to start immediately. Once it's started, we can take it slow. Um, so the room, we tend to have the room around about 15, 15 and a half degrees. Um, so we keep it nice, slow once it's started, but we want it to start very, very quickly. Um, so we introduce yeast um, and yeast nutrients to do that. All of the tanks in here are steel tanks with a couple of plastic ones, because the harvest has been massive this year. Um, so I've run out of space. So these are, these are plastic tanks that we're using to ferment or move them into barrels and tanks once that's done. I do all the fermentations, individual um, apple varieties. So we've got Cox Orange Pippin, we've got Bramley, um, Browns, Major, uh, Yarlington Mill, Somerset Red Streak, uh, Blakeney Red, which is a, a peri-pear, Rosette, uh, which is a red-fleshed um, apple, and Discovery, um, and a couple of others as well. The reason why is I want the easy thing would be to put, it, put everything together, but I think if you do everything separately, you can find balance in each apple and pear, and then you can blend uh, from there, which is what I want to try and achieve. So how long does this part of the process take? So the fermentation itself takes anything from uh, 10 to 20 days, there or thereabouts. We then close the vats at the point of the end of the fermentation, and then um, it can be anything from 10 to 12 months in vat before we then bottle. You're bottling now last year's cider? It, exactly that. So we bottled, we bottled last year's at the beginning of August. So it was 10 months or whatever it was. And then it will stay in bottle depending on the, the blend. It will stay in bottle for anything from two years to five years before we then sell it. Oh, so... What can we buy now? Like what's out in the shop now? Is it maybe something from a few years ago then? Exactly. So 2019 is what we are selling at, at present. So it was in bottle for two years. It was in, in cast for, for 10 months, then bottled for two years, and it's now available for sale. Yeah. And is that quite normal in cider making or is that just the way you do it? It's becoming more normal. Um, I, I think it's a temptation obviously for cider producers or any business to try and get your product out as quickly as possible. But um, one of the key processes that I use is the secondary fermentation in bottle. And that's something that you just can't rush. So it needs time. It needs a year or two minimum to really feel the characteristics of what the cider does um, alongside the dead yeast cells in the bottle. Um, and I like, my, my vision ultimately is to work to somewhere nearer three or four years, but We'll see how time uh, works, and it, it, we'll, we'll only know in, in two or three years' time. Once once the 2019, we've kept some behind on on lees. Once that's done, three or four years, we'll only know then how it really tolerates that that time. 
Um, just to explain for anyone that doesn't know, what does on leaves mean? So when we bottle, we create a little mother of yeast and, and cider. We then add a little bit of sugar into that. And then into each bottle, we add a small amount of that sugar and yeast. The, sugar in, the yeast eats all the sugar that we've added, and that gives off carbon dioxide. Once it's eaten all the sugar, the, the yeast will die and drop to the, to the bottom of the bottles. And I can go and show you that later on. And it will lay at the bottom of the bottles um, until we disgorge it. That process where, where the, the cider interacts with, with the, the, the dead yeast or lees is what we call autolytic um, process, uh, an autolytic process rather. So the, the lees is just the dead yeast cells at the bottom of the bottle. And is that why sometimes in champagne they have to twist, turn the bottle when it's lying aging? Yeah, uh, so they don't, when it's aging they don't turn it, but when they want to get rid of the lees, they turn it. So you put it onto a rack and then you slowly rotate it over a period of three or four weeks um, and it, the lees will drop to the, the neck of the bottle and then you can remove the lees by opening the bottle carefully. A process called disgorgement à la volée. in an old building that's um, got a lot of barrels racked. Yeah, so what, one of the, uh, I suppose, unique aspects um, of, of what I do is I look to do fermentations and ageing in barrels. We get all of our barrels from the Champagne region, and they're all, as you'll see from a number of them, have, have names of Champagne producers on them, and I want them to have at least one or two fermentations previously in Champagne, so there's a bit of a, a mark on the barrel. And this brings a fairly unique characteristic to the cider. It's not upfront, it's not uh, aggressive. I'm, you know, it's not like putting it in a, a rum barrel or something like that. It's very delicate um, and it has an elegance and, and softness, which, it, which I think works really, really beautifully with the cider. So much like the tank room um, that we've just been in, everything's fermented individually. And again, these will be, so the fermentations are going on at the moment. I don't know if you can, if you put the microphone here. Fermentations in here. So that's a barrel of Kingston Black, and we started the fermentation on the, the 19th of October. Um, and much like the tanks, we leave, we leave it open because uh, we want oxygen to interact um, with that. Um, but as soon as the fermentation is finished, we'll top the barrel up because there's usually uh, about two or three litres that we leave open. Uh, we'll top it up and then top the stopper on and that will close up and, until July, August next year. And so do you bottle them as individual apple varieties or will you do a bit of blending? Good question. So um, it really depends. So my vision and what we have done historically was to do a traditional method with a, not exclusively, but a blend of Cox Orange Pippin and Bramley, which is my, my idea of, of what would work. As I've, you know, I'm onto my, I'm onto my fourth harvest, and I'm starting to see trends in what works and what doesn't, and my ideas are changing slowly. So I think we'll probably introduce some other blends into the main traditional method, and then do another number of other cuvées. So last year, for example, we did a single variety blend of Stoke Red, which is a bitter sharp apple. And that, for me, was incredibly unique style and uh, substance of, of cider. So we'll see how that ages. It'll be another three years before we release it. 
but it was a really exciting thing to do. So we walked into the third shed and it's um, uh, full of more barrels. So these are slightly different sized barrels to the previous shed. And the idea is to experiment and try and understand over the years how the difference in size can affect the liquid within the barrel. Um, and the reason why is with the smaller barrels, you've got more oak per cubic inch, centimeter, whatever it be. And um, the effect of that, from my experience so far, is it really benefits the higher acid apples. So Bramley and the sharp perries work really, really well in small barrels. Whereas the slightly more complex, bitter aromas of things like Stoke Red, Kingston Black work better in larger barrels. Um, and then the, the, the slightly smaller barrels seem to bring out the sweet fruits quite nicely. So these are 190, but they're very old staves on these. And this is a, a producer called Paul Lenoir, which is a champagne producer from Menil Surgier, uh, which is in the lower part of the Côte de Blanc in, in Champagne. So we are now in the wall garden. Um, it's uh, a wall garden that was built in 1900. It's the trees that sit around the, the, the wall were, were planted when, when the wall garden um, was, was built. So they're 120 years old. And then we've replanted um, the spaces with trees uh, of kind of modern descent. So we have Cox Orange Puppin on the, on the north wall there. We have thorn peri pears here. We have old field peri pears there. Um, Bramley's to your left and then a number of Scottish cookers lining along the bottom and then Bramley again, King of the Pippins, uh, Dabonet, Stoke Red, Yarlington Mill, Kingston Black, Porter's Perfection and a number of French cider varieties um, which I must confess I can't remember the name of. <laughs> So, excuse me. <laughs> we should also say there's some ducks in case everyone can hear that. <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we have a number of ducks um, that are our little pest control and they eat all of the bugs and, and everything that, um, around, the, around the trees. And they're fantastic. They're, they're great at it. Um, uh, they do make a lot of noise. Um, and, uh, but they're, they're great fun. They're great fun. We've just released the new vintage of what we call Homage to Hog. And that is a single variety, single barrel, um, and barrel aged, obviously, um, bitter sweet or bitter sharp apple, depending on the vintage. So this one is a Kingston Black, which is a bitter sharp. So we just released it from last year. And whereabouts can you buy it? So we work with a number of, of uh, small retailers. Um, one of the, the biggest ones is St Andrew's Wine Company, but we work with a number of others, Ardross Farm, Shop, the Newport Grocers, and the Urban Grocers, rather. And um, our, our big thing that we want to try and push more and more with the cider is, is to have it working with food. So we work with a number of very well-established restaurants like the Cellar, Lalique Restaurant over in Glentorrit, um, uh, Killy Cranky House. And that's our vision to really, really uh, create that link with food because uh, that's where we feel cider is best, express, best to express itself. So we're, we're 
passing by um, the sheds where we store all of our um, cider from the previous years. And we're just going round to the main storage area and also the area where we riddle to remove the lees. So this is a really old looking round building. What was it for before? It was, it was used previously for hanging meat. Uh, so it's north facing, uh, so it, does, it doesn't get any sunlight during the day. If you feel as you walk in, it is cold and damp, which is perfect conditions for storing anything that has lees aging. So we want it around 10 degrees, 10, 11 degrees, something like that. So 11.3 at the moment. Um, it was clearly slightly warmer yesterday, which, um, which it definitely was. And uh, so this is where we store all of the traditional method um, that, we, that we make. So in front of you are some magnums of a blend, a multi-vintage blend, and also our prestige cider, which we made last year, and then our, also our, our standard traditional method cider. We age most of our stock uh, on steel cap, which is what you can see here. Um, so it has a small steel cap and that stops any carbon dioxide um, and liquid, obviously, um, being ejected. And what you can see here is the lees oh, yeah. in the bottom of the bottle. So it looks like... Sludge, let's yeah. be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a bit like a lava lamp as well, like it could move and yeah. start making colours. And so yeah. it, it, um, Once you stir it around, you can really see. Yeah. It's... Um, Quite disgusting, let's be honest. But it's it's it magical nice. what 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 happens um, as you age it over time. And we'll go upstairs in a second, and I'll show you how we remove all of that, um, and the, the liquid inside becomes completely clear, um, and you just have a small drop of sediment at the bottom. So, so because you're using champagne bottles, you're getting a, you're getting a good amount of cider for that for your money. Because you think cider is normally like a bottle of beer, bottle of cider, so that's quite a quite a good size. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, 75 mil, so 75 mils behind you, which is the standard size there, um, we use for, for, for our cider. Um, but yeah, you're right, it's, it's, it's something, f for us, it, it's an expression and quality of what we're doing. We want something that's, you know, when, when people think about cider, the last probably 100 years of cider production has been about mass production. And as such, it's moved from historically would have been 75 mils, it's moved from 75 to 500 and 330s. And there is absolutely, obviously, a place for drinking cider in 500 mil, uh, which we do produce, in fact, um, and 330s. But when I think about quality, I want something in a wine bottle or wine size, 75 mil. And yes, champagne bottle obviously allows us to add a huge amount of pressure. Um, in, inside, this is just an interesting little, little difference in, in what we produce. So this is a single variety. Um, and we want to bottle single variety on cork, not cap. So we've done a small amount of bottling. Um, this is 100% bottled on cork um, and a small amount of every other thing we release on, on cork as well. And the difference there is how it interacts with oxygen over time. So a cap is very, very neutral. It gives you a very steady and neutral um, exchange of, of air between the bottle and, and the outside. Whereas a cork, you get a spike of increase in oxygen for about six months, and then it drops really far down. You get absolutely, not zero, but you get very, very little exchange um, over the next four or five years. And it becomes a really good way of storing um, something for a long time on the lees. And in fact, you look at most champagne houses now, their prestige cuvee, their high-end cuvee, is aged on cork, not cap.
So we're at the top of the roundhouse, and this is where we historically have done our riddling, but now we're at a size where it becomes no longer really viable. Um, it's a wooden floor, so um, I don't really want to put too much weight on it. So, um, but we have got a few riddle bottles here to show you exactly what I mean. The process of riddling, which is the process of removing over time or, or moving the sediment. So this is a riddling rack. So we, we put the bottle in and it's relatively horizontal. And then over, over a period of about 30 or 40 days, we rotate the bottle ever so slightly, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And by doing so, we slowly push the sediment down into the neck of the bottle. And by the end of the process, you're left with the plug of sediment right at the bottom and the liquid is completely clear. And so the, this, uh, this is a piece of wood against another piece of wood, almost like an A-frame and it's got holes drilled in it, but they're like, it looks like something from an old fun fair. So the final step of the process is the bottling process. And we do that in July, August, depending on the timing, because it takes a, it's, it's quite a big, big venture. It takes a lot of people. We create the blend, which is done over a period of, of weeks as we decide what to use into the main blend. Somewhere around about two to 3,000 bottles. We put it into a big vat. We create the mother, so we create more yeast, uh, adding sugar and start that process. And then, we um, have a bottling machine, which is a little machine with six heads, and it's also filling. So you just put the bottles in, they fill up with the liquid. And then um, at that time, either we're doing uh, on cap, which is a machine over there in the corner. It's a little pneumatic cap, um, capper and it puts a cap on. Um, or we use a machine over there, which is a corking and wiring machine, um, depending on what we're doing. At that point, it's, it's a finished product to do its second fermentation. It's then popped downstairs into the, into the room downstairs and it waits. And it waits for two years, three years, four years, maybe even five years from there. So it's all quite a hand process. You've got some automation, but you're doing a lot of this by hand. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, that's the, the, the beauty of it for me is exactly that. It's all by hand. So we, we do all the picking by hand. We do all the processing and pressing by hand. We do the, uh, we do the bottling all by hand. Yeah, it's, it's a great process, uh, really a lot of fun. Cider's not your background, it's actually champagne. So could you just tell us how you got into that? I was, uh, many, many years ago, I was at University of St Andrews and I was uh, working at an Oddman's for a kind of weekend, weekend job. And I was given the task of looking after the champagne region um, in the shop. And I just completely fell in love with it. It was an amazing experience to experience something completely new. Obviously, you know, to most people, opening champagne when you're kind of 18, 19 years old is a new experience. And this was something really special for me. Really, really amazing. And I've just loved it ever since. In the early 2000s, I started to travel to the region. And it was there that I discovered that champagne obviously is more than just what you saw on the shelves in Oppens or for any, that matter, any other wine retailer or, or merchant. And I discovered a, a world of, of champagne over there and the thousands of producers that I've now visited over the last 20 years and just fell in love with it, fell in love with the people, fell in love with the wines, fell in love with everything. It's, it's ultimately what got me into cider, obviously, but it's something that I keep on going back to because they are beyond everything else, beyond the marketing and the machine that you see in, in companies like Moet and Bollinger and, and Verticco, et cetera. Behind all of that are farmers uh, just looking after their grapes 
and and making an incredible product. And it's exactly what you've seen here with with the cider. In that sense, it's just it's just a farmer. He's just tending to grapes, and usually ninety uh, percent of them, they're also making the champagne. They're bottling. They're vinifying. They're doing everything themselves. Uh, and it's an incredible process to see. So you've still got a sort of champagne presence. So can you tell us about that as well? So during COVID, I had to step away from my from my work. And uh, the process of that, I realised that I, there was an opportunity to do something with champagne that I'd never done before. So I met up with my, my business colleague, uh, now Daniel Blatchford, and we set up SIP. And SIP is uh, really a celebration of champagne and specifically small producer champagnes. So we now work with over 50 producers from the region of Champagne, and they're almost all exclusive to us into the UK market. And they're incredible producers. They're new winemakers, new vignerons, and they make amazing champagnes. It's a really amazing experience, and it's, it's really great to, to celebrate these small producers uh, in the world of Champagne, because the Champagne world is, is full of, of big names, and it's really great to be there you know, shouting about the smaller producers and giving them presence into such a large market like the UK. Because, yeah, I feel like when you think champagne, everyone will just assume that anyone growing the grapes is going into one of the big houses, but there are actual independents as well. There are a lot. So there are roughly two and a half thousand producers who make their, who look after their own grapes and make their own champagne. A number of those will still sell grapes or sell grape uh, must or, or, or end product to the, the, the big, big names, but they'll always keep a small amount back to make their own champagne. And yeah, so how did you go from champagne to coming home to set up a cider company? Back in 2018, my wife gave birth to our, our eldest son. And I, at that time, I called up a friend in Champagne and we spent some time putting together and making a champagne for my son. And it was a blend of lots of different uh, vignerons wines. And it was an amazing process, really a lot of fun. Um, but it was very hands-off. I just rang up producers. I asked to buy a little bit of juice and, and we made some champagne. It was great fun. In 2019, I did the same thing again when my second son was born. But I, I longed to do something that was hands-on, allowed me to do something with, with the ground, uh, with the earth, and, and create something completely from nothing. And we saw the wall garden, we saw the trees. We obviously have, have some nice relationships with kind of cousins and friends around the area who have apple trees. And it seemed like the obvious thing, Northeast Fife and um, the, across the Tay as well, has a, an incredibly rich history of both soft and hard fruit production over the last few centuries. And with the warming climate, it allows us to, to grow more and more challenging trees like Cox Orange Pippin, like Stoke Red, things like that which historically you just simply wouldn't have been able to do so it was a great opportunity to do it and and i just i thought let's do it so i planted lots of trees started the process and and here we are a few years later and we got our first product onto the market um which is our traditional method which is my vision of of what we can do which is very much a, a sparkling cider with a significant nod to champagne because i love both things so much so what are your plans for the future it's a really exciting time for cider in Scotland. I think there's an opportunity to really elevate cider. My vision really is, is to make something that people think, right, I'm going to go to a nice restaurant or I'm going to go to the, the, the place where I usually buy my, my wine or, or whatever it be and I see an amazing cider and I think, actually, I'm going to try that. That's something interesting. Um, and I want, to, I want to elevate that. I want, I, I'm, I'm not scared about shouting about it. I, I want my product to be seen alongside 
sparkling wines from across the world. Um, that's my that's my vision. And it does help with the local shops such as Abel and Pit and Weem that they are really putting cider on the map in terms of it's not just your can of. I don't want to say it, but Strongbow. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. It's like so many other things in, you know, the, the relationship with Champagne is very similar in, in that sense. The, the, the grand marks, the big, big names, are there doing, doing the legwork. Strongbow, Bulmers, Magnus, whatever, you know, they, they've done so much work historically uh, with cider. A lot of it is not massively constructive to, to my journey now. But yeah, shops like Abel are, are making the right noise. They're they're promoting, you know, really diverse ciders from across across the country and across the world. For for that matter, they've got some lovely ciders from across the world, and uh, and I want to be part of that journey. I want to I want to really you know explore what's possible in Scotland and really really take Scottish cider um, to the next level. So we normally do desert island drinks or jams, but in this case, I'll just ask you quickly: What's your favourite cider and what's your favourite champagne? <laughs> Which you probably get asked all the time. Am I allowed to say my own? No. Um, <laughs> no. Look, one of the first things, uh, when I started to learn more and more about cider, I discovered very early on the ciders from Find and Foster. They're down in Devon. They've been running for only about seven years. And they were the, really the first cider that made me stop and think, wow, this is like nothing else I've tasted before. Um, there was complexity. There was depth. There was kind of uh, secondary elements, so these kind of rich, complex secondary elements that come from Lee's ageing. And that was the first cider that made me think, wow, that's incredible. And they made a, a cider in 2017 called Oak, which we've well, got a few bottles just over there, which I still hang on to. And whenever I see them, I, I, I grab them because it's, it's a really incredible cider. With Sip, I've obviously opened my, my, my eyes up to a world of different champagnes and there are a few names that I think are astonishing that will be the most incredible champagnes out there. Um, am I allowed to do more than three? Uh, I think the wines from Georges Remy in Bouzy are outstanding. He makes the most incredibly rich and complex Pinot Noir and Chardonnay as well. So he works a little bit with Chardonnay and they are hugely deep and concentrated and rich. He plays around with oxygen, which is not something I necessarily normally like, but he does it in such a clever way that you just fall in love with it every single time you open a bottle. Um, in particular, his, his Pinot Noir, is, his, his Blanc de Noir, it's called, is absolutely incredible. There's a new, a brand new producer called uh, Thomas Herbert, and his wine's called DH2. And he does a Pinot Noir, um, which is oak vinified in Rousseau barrels. We use Rousseau barrels for the cider. And that's truly astonishing. A, a much fresher style, really vivacious and rich and, and pure of fruit. And, and will be definitely a producer um, to watch grow over the next few years as he, as, he, as he learns more and more from the vintages. And then the, the last one, if I may, is a producer from Auger um, called Domaine Vancy. And they are uh, a producer from a village that I don't normally like. It's a little bit of a fat, usually produces a kind of fat style of Chardonnay. But they vinify in such a beautiful way with oak. And they create this beautiful tension and, and freshness with their wines that you, you never feel that fatness. There's a precision and beauty from them that are absolutely astonishing. So yeah, those are my top three. Thank you very much. That was great. Really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
thanks to Peter for being my guest on this episode. It was such an interesting chat and really great to see the care and attention put into every bottle. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this year's crop turns out. Thanks to you too for listening. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Scran is Laudable podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.